0: Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the scriptures. Well, good morning, family. Good to have you all here. Good to be with you. I encourage you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to the book of James. Well, it's been a great morning. I'm going to take us to the Lord in prayer. What a great song. And uh, asking the Lord to meet with us here as we come to be filled to get our food from his holy word. Teach us, Lord, we pray. We are needy people. As we come to this text this morning, we recognize that we need to hear from you. We don't need the words of a pastor. We don't need our ideas. We need to hear from you, Lord. So I pray that you would speak through the stammering lips of this pastor to speak your truth. So, Father, we come hungry. We ask that you would help our minds to be attentive and our hearts to be yielded to you. And may your spirit do a work in us this day. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, I wonder how many of you here this morning have a sin problem. You know, as I scanned the, the room this morning, some of you, and I don't want to, I'm not going to name names, but some of you... Well, I don't want to call you liars. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Some of you may have been trying to figure out how to mute your phone, which, speaking of that, there you go, okay. Some of you may have uh, been nodding off because the pastor prayed a little too long. Uh, Some of you may have just, you know, you're wary of sticking your hand up in church because somebody might sign you up to be an usher or something. But I saw some hands that didn't go up that should have. Because the reality is, according to the word of God, we've all got a sin problem. First John chapter 1 verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We all have a sin problem. We are born sinners, but there's good news. Because the Bible says that we can be saved from sin through Jesus Christ. It says in many places, most direct, Acts chapter 16, verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Bible uses that word saved, however, in several ways ways in Scripture. Most significantly, I'm going to just mention three ways that the Bible uses this word saved, three senses in which the word is used. We can even say three tenses because they have to do with time or our relation to time. See, the Bible says that we have been saved, and I'll put that in the past tense. We have been saved in the past you see, we are born sinners, but the Bible says that God became man. God sent Jesus Christ. He came to be one of us, a human. He came to die in our place as a substitute for our sin. He rose again from the dead. And the Bible says that those who put their faith in him, as Acts 16.31 said, who believe in him Are saved. We have been saved, saved from the penalty of sin. The Bible calls that we are justified, justification. The penalty of sin has been paid for. We are no longer going to be punished for sin. We are no longer condemned before God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. But we are justified as by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction by His blood to be received by faith. God, by His grace, again, made a way for, us, for our sin to be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Our, it is a gift that all we can do is receive it by faith. If you're here this morning... You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Please understand, that is the only way to have sin forgiven, the only way for us to be made right with God. The only way to be justified, be made right. That's what that word means. But the Bible also uses that word saved in another tense. It uses it in the present tense that we are being saved. The Bible term that is used to describe that is sanctification. You see, as believers in Jesus, we have been justified, made right with God, saved from the penalty of sin, but we still have a sin nature and we still sin. Which is why all of our hands should have gone up. Do you have a sin problem? Yeah, I still do. I still sin. The Bible says that God is at work in us who are believers in Jesus Christ, in an ongoing work, an ongoing process of sanctification, transforming us, transforming our character, transforming our behavior, transforming us from the inside out to be more like Jesus. Romans chapter 6, just a couple of chapters over from where we just read a moment ago, it says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves in God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification. The Bible also speaks of our salvation not only as something in the past and something in the present, but it speaks of it as something in the future, that we will be saved. The Bible word for that is glorification. The day is coming when we will be saved in the future when Jesus takes us home to be with him into the presence of God and we will finally be all that God has designed for us to be and that is for us to be perfected no longer sinners perfectly righteous and glorified. Romans 8 says but I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. There is a glorification that is coming in the future. Our trust in Jesus Christ has accomplished all three of these for us. Past, present, and future. They were all paid for by Jesus Christ and became ours when we put our faith and trust in him. But those last two things have yet to be fully and finally realized. We are still in process of sanctification, being made like Christ. That won't be finished until we get to heaven and are perfected and glorified. I go through that to set the stage for what comes here in this passage in James, in chapter 1 of James. Because of these three aspects of our salvation, what is before us this morning is this second aspect of salvation, sanctification. You see, because as we've noted, this book of James is about real faith meeting real life. And as those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, who have put our faith and trust in him How does that mesh with the fact that we live in a world that is fallen and we, even as believers in Jesus Christ, we still sin? How does real faith meet here and mesh here with real life? Well, God calls us to sanctification, to be holy. To not sin. The Apostle Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, but as he who called you is holy, as God is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. You see, as those who are believers in Jesus Christ, we should simply stop sinning. We should sin no more. We are should say no to sin. We are to be holy in all that we do. So how's that going for you? See, we can all attest that that's easy to say. That's what we ought to be, but it is not what we are. And so what are we to do? As God calls us to sanctification, as he calls us to live holy lives, how do we do that? Well, James, real faith meeting real life, again, he just jumps right in. We're very early in the book, but he jumps in to this problem with sin. Someone once said, I can resist anything except temptation. And I think we can all identify with that. That's the problem this morning. As we come here to James chapter 1 and verse 13... How do we handle with, how do we deal with temptation that we might live more holy lives? Over the years, the Chapel of the Lake has been home to a number of airline pilots, particularly back in the days when St. Louis was a hub. We had quite a number of pilots in our church, and some of those pilots Besides being a pilot, they spent much or if not most of their time over in the training center training other pilots how to fly. I learned some many things from those men, but I remember particularly one of them one day telling me that almost every airline disaster is preventable. Rarely is an airline catastrophe one single catastrophic event. Catastrophes usually come as a series of bad decisions, of mistakes, of unnoticed problems, ignored warnings, all of which then escalate and culminate in a catastrophe. The key to preventing catastrophes with an airplane is discovering and correcting problems before they escalate and become a catastrophe. And that's the focus of the training that the pilots that, we, that fly our airplanes go through, and I appreciate that. It's also a great analogy when it comes to sin and preventing sin in our life. We are all sadly all too acquainted with the stories of very well-known and high-profile Christian leaders who suddenly fall into catastrophic and disastrous sin. But We've also, we often sometimes see that happen close to home with people we know. But the reality is that very rarely does someone fall into great sin as a single big catastrophic event. Rather, like airline disasters, most sin, great or small, can be averted if it's dealt with early in the process. And that's where James concerns himself here in our text before us this morning. In order to say to to avoid falling into sin, we need to understand a little bit about temptation how to say no to temptation to avoid crashing and burning in sin. First, we need to understand a little bit of how temptation works, where it leads. And so James calls us here in these first verses to understand temptation. Verse 13. Now let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil And he himself tempts no one. There's a tendency for those of us with sin problems. (laughs) There's a tendency for us to blame God or blame others. Well, I sinned, I fell into this because, you know, it's so-and-so's fault or it's God's fault. That tendency goes all the way back to our first human ancestors. And the very first sin. If you recall there in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, God comes and confronts Adam. Adam, did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? You remember his response? The woman, (laughs) you gave me, gave me the fruit and I ate. In other words, God, it's Eve's fault and your fault. If you'd given me a better woman, that wouldn't have happened. Sound familiar? (laughs) When we sin, how often do we blame others? By the way, Eve blamed the serpent. (laughs) Adam blamed Eve and God, and Eve blames the serpent. So where does temptation come from? Next verse. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Temptation originates in us and with us. It originates there. The process of temptation here, notice he says, he gives us some insight into that. Where it really begins, it really begins by our desires, now some of your translations may read there your evil desires, but the original Greek doesn't say evil desires, just desires. You have desires, I have desires, we all have desires, and desires in themselves aren't bad. If you have no desire to eat, you eventually die. <laughs> At least if you don't eat, and most of us we have no desire, it's very hard to eat. If you have no desire to drink, you will die of thirst. Desires are not necessarily bad. But if we don't control our desires, then we begin to be, it says here, lured by them. Literally, the word there is carried away or dragged away by our desires. See, the problem isn't our desires, but the problem is that as we have desires, we begin to look around and think about fulfilling our desires. We begin to focus on our desires, and the emphasis is there's a loss of control that we simply follow our desires. We live directed and controlled by our desires rather than by our thinking and rather than by, as we'll get to later, by God's Word and what God desires for us. And once we are in that condition where we are following our desires rather than controlling our desires with our thinking, we are susceptible to being, our verse says, enticed or, as some translations will say, deceived. The word there, enticed, means to bait. It's the picture of a fisherman with the hook and you bait the hook with bait. You see, there is a deceiver. That's why you like that translation, deceived. There is a deceiver who's enticing, baiting the hook. We have an enemy who desires to take us out. We read earlier from, we were reading in our scripture reading from Ephesians chapter 6. He says there that, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in the heavenly places. We, we have an enemy, Satan, and his demons, his emissaries, and the system of this world, which are there to take advantage of our desires and our foolish naivete, And when we are following our desires and living simply by what we feel like, what we desire, then when opportunity knocks, we open the door and there's that delicious worm. (laughs) Okay, I'm thinking fish here. (laughs) Whatever it is that it looks so good. And we see the bait, but we don't see the hook. Temptation begins with us. The deceiver and the world system baits the hook. And at this point, we haven't yet succumbed to temptation, but we are precariously close. And with each step where we are controlled by and living according to our desires, we are one step closer to giving in to that temptation when it is put before us We're almost a goner. Verse 15, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What happens when we give in to temptation? He gives us the product here of what happens when we succumb to temptation, we don't resist it, and he goes to a birth analogy when desire has conceived, when it has taken the bait, and the temptation has hooked us, it gives birth, it says, to sin. Desire conceives and births sin. Unrestrained desire has taken us into sin, and then he says sin grows up. Sin leads to more sin. Sin becomes habitual. Sin becomes lifestyle. Sin begins to control us, and then it says sin brings death. Sin is deadly in several ways, according to the Scripture. Sin is deadly in terms of eternal death, eternal judgment, eternal separation from God in hell. Revelation chapter 20, just go to the end of the book. Turn left, look one chapter back in chapter 20, and we find there the great judgment, the great white throne where God is there, and all the dead, great and small, stand before him, and books are opened. If anyone's name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, their their works, their sins stand to judge them. Anyone who has not placed their faith in Jesus, you see, they are judged by their sin, they are condemned. And it says there, this is the second death. That's one way sin is deadly. But there's another way it's deadly. Sin has broken our relationship with God. We are alienated from Him. We are, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 says, cut off from the life of God. We are dead, Ephesians 2, 1, in our transgressions and sin the moment by the way that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ both of those things are dead are gone away the condemnation the the judgment is removed we're justified in God's sight the relationship with God is restored with him but there's another way that sin brings death and that is it brings as it were a living death a life of death a wasted life ecclesiastes calls it where the writer there says its life that is meaningless life that has no point life that is empty it is as peter writes in first peter chapter 1 verse 18 an empty way of life handed down to us by our forefathers sin also brings physical death for by one man sin entered into the world through adam and death through sin, and it's passed to all men. We're all sinners, and we all suffer physical death. It's come to all men because of sin. But sinful living can also result not only in physical death, but in premature physical death. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 11. He said, as some of you have fallen asleep because of this sin. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 says there is a sin that leads to death desire that is unrestrained uncontrolled gives birth as it takes hold of temptation it gives birth to sin and sin brings death so how do we stand against temptation four important truths i find in verses 16 to 21 verse 16 he says do not be deceived my beloved brothers Pastor James, you can read his compassion here. He's a good pastor. He loves his people. He says, oh, my beloved brothers, understand this. Don't be deceived. Understand this, brothers and sisters. Don't be fooled. Don't be tricked by the allure of temptation. See temptation and sin for what it is. Despite all the appearances of the temptation Despite all the pretty packaging and the nice paper and the nice big bow, sin is death. Temptation has a good advertising representative. Good advertisers never advertise the price tag when, it's, when they think people are going to think that's high, they always disguise it. They don't put it there. They put it small. They just avoid the price tag. Tell you how much they, you want it. Or they tell you, "It's only 5,280 payments of 1999." It's just a little little pay, you know, a little thing. Sin always has attractive bait but never tell you the price tag. It's a deadly hook. We want the treat, but we don't want the, to pay the bill. He's saying we need the blinders taken off so we see it reality. Sin is not to be toyed with. It is not to be trivialized. And how we have a temptation, my friends, to say that this is just a little sin, this is just a little sin, this is just a little sin. And you see, it's like the the airline, the airplane. (laughs) It's just a little problem, just a little problem, just a little thing. I can ignore that. It's not a big deal. I just ignore this. It's not a big deal. And all of a sudden it blows up and we wonder what happened. Sin is not trivial. It's to be run away from, not toyed with. So the first thing we need to know if we're going to stand against it is not be deceived. See it for what it is. Second thing we find in verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Well, there's a lot there in that verse. Let me just say this. You ever shop online? Most of us do these days. Some of our best shopping is online. It can be great. There are tens of thousands of things for sale out there and and, uh, tens of thousands of businesses and tens of thousands of individuals who are advertising everything out there from their products to their junk to their treasures, and it's all out there, and we can go and find what we're looking for at a great price, but you can get burned Can you not? Shopping online. Because there are folks who are deceptive and folks who are crooked. At the heart of temptation is understanding that at the heart of temptation, there's a deceiver, a tempter, who offers a product, sin, that is deceptively marketed, and it's deadly. What this verse is reminding us is that there is a perfect provider. There is a perfect provider. There is one who gives every good gift. And every gift he gives is good. He is a good father, it says here. He's a father who never changes. We can count on that. That every... Everything he does, everything he gives us is good. Even when he doesn't do what we think he ought to do, even when he doesn't give us what we think he ought to give us, even when he gives us what we think we don't want, he's always good. He is a good father who knows how to give gifts, good gifts to his children. And this verse is saying that God is the only trusted source for all of our needs and all of our desires. There is never a hidden hook. There is never a defective product. God gives us every good thing we need. The key is to trust God, to put God first, to follow him first, and to believe what scripture says, for example, in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But our problem goes back to the very first sin and to that tempter, Satan, who said, hey, Eve, Eve, God is holding out on you. In so many words, that's what he said. God doesn't want you to be like him. If you eat of that, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And he doesn't want that for you. God really isn't good. And you see, at the heart of really of every temptation is we want to call God a liar. God, what you say really isn't true. What you say really isn't good. What you want for me really isn't good. God, you're trying to hold back and keep from me something that is really is good for me. That's really at the heart of every temptation, the heart of every sin. Instead of trusting that God is good, we think that we know better We insist on doing things our own way. We insist on taking matters into our own hands. We insist on chasing what we think will make us happy, what we think will fulfill us, what we think will make life worthwhile, what we think will get this done, what we think needs to be done, whatever. And it's about what we want instead of, okay, God, I'm going to trust what you say. I'm going to trust what you say is good I'm going to trust that you really do love me, that you really do care for me, and that what you are bringing into my life here really is for the good. But when we go chasing things our own way, that is when we are set up in prime pickings for the lure of temptation. This verse is simply reminding us don't go there. Trust God. Make him your desire. Make him your focus. Trust him to provide all good things. After all, Paul reminds us here, if God, if he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all good things? If we are going to trust God that God saved us by giving Jesus Christ to die in our place, if God would sacrifice his own son for our salvation, if we believe that to be saved, then why won't we trust him about everything else? Because if God won't hold that back, what would he hold back? We struggle, do we not? But he says we need to believe. Don't be deceived. Sin is dangerous. Believe that God is good. And God is working for our good. Thirdly, verse 18. Of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The third truth we need to recognize to help us stand against temptation is that we have a higher calling That God has a better plan for you. He has a better plan for you than being a victim caught in the trap of sin. He has a better plan for you than being hooked by the temptations of the evil one. He has a better plan than suffering death that was born of sin, that was born from desires that were uncontrolled in your life. He has a better plan for you than you have for yourself. God has, it says here, brought us forth. Literally, the word there in the Greek is he has birthed us. It's setting up a contrast here to the birth of our desires that give birth to sin, when we won't control them, that leads to death. Here is a birth by the word of truth to something different. You see, God has birthed us to a new birth, to a new life eternal life forever and a new life now. He says we are to be first fruits. God wants us to be something new. He wants us to be something different. He wants us to be something refreshing. He wants us to be something beautiful in the very midst of a corrupted and broken world. As those of us who are believers in Christ, he has called us to be, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, new creations. He has already made us new creations. He calls us to live as new creations he's made us to be. We are to be those who live the goodness and the grace and the beauty, the attractiveness, the winsomeness of God rather than the greed and the selfishness and the self-centeredness of the world around us we're called to be first fruits who live as lights in a dark world fourth thing for us to see here for us to stand against temptation is that there is a powerful protection for us verse 19 know this my beloved brothers Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. If we are serious about avoiding temptation so we avoid yielding to sin, that we have to get serious with the Word of God. Notice he says here, the tool here for us is the implanted Word. In other words, the Word of God, which is implanted in us, which takes root in us. David, in Psalm 119, verse 9, asks the question, how can a young man keep his way answers the question in the second half of that verse by taking heed or by listening according to your word. He goes on two verses later and says, so your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. In other words, it's not just, oh, I'm going to take the chapel's Bible reading plan and start reading the word of God every day. James, a servant of God, end of Jesus Christ to the end of was, 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 was reading, was, okay, done. what it means when he says I've hidden your word in my heart it means internalizing it. it means saying Lord I really want to understand what are you trying to say to me that's why we spend time here every Sunday morning trying to unpack the verses of scripture so we understand it so we can apply it so we can internalize it we, we make it part of us we say okay God here's what you say I want to know that I want to know that not only with my intellect, I want to know it with my heart, and I want to apply it in my life. Five key attitudes. If we're going to take the Word of God and implant it so we stand against temptation, five key attitudes that are in these verses that I just read, I want us to note these as I close. First, he says, we need to be quick to listen. Verse 19, we need to be people who are eager to want to find out what does God say? Is it always easy to dig into God's word? No, it's hard sometimes. It takes effort. Why would I do that? Because I want to know what God says so I can know what's the right thing to do instead of falling for the lies of Satan. And so I'm eager to get into the book because I want. I want to learn. Be quick to listen. When God speaks, you know, do the E. F. Hutton thing. If you go remember those old commercials, you know, what's God saying? I want to know. Be quick to listen, but also He says, "Be slow to speak." Be people who are teachable. Lots of folks are very quick to spew out their ideas and opinions. Get on social media. Everybody has lots to say, and most of it is worth the electrons that bring it to you. (laughs) Be quick to put your opinions and things aside and say, Okay, God, I'm willing to listen. Be teachable, quick to listen, slow to speak. And slow to become angry in verses 19 to 20. Don't be a person who's difficult and ill-tempered. Yes, it means that. Don't be, But it also means don't be angry or defensive when you're confronted with your wrong attitudes or wrong actions. And boy, when the Word of God, when we start, really start reading it, really hits us where we live. And it's easy to get angry. Oh, who's... Who can, who's uh, that's not... My. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Our anger is counterproductive to bringing about the righteous life that God desires in us. Fourthly, be repentant. See, he says here, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. What we need to do is not just... Say, well, I want to hear what God has to say so I can run it past my opinion, so I can decide if I like that or not, so I can maybe decide to change a few things in my life. What it's saying is I need to recognize that sin is deadly and dangerous and I want it out of my life, and so I'm repentant. And I say, God, show me in your word, show me in your word what I need. Lord, search me, O God, as David prayed. Search me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is some wicked way in me. Expose it. Because when you do, I want to repent of it. I want to confess it and change. Turn from it. Sincerely desire to put away sin, to clean it out of our minds and actions, he says. Put it away. Lastly, he says, be humble. He says, with, to receive it with meekness. Don't be stubborn, but instead be humble. Recognize that we desperately need the wisdom of God because we are desperately, as the Bible says, the heart of man is desperately wicked. Our inclinations are wrong. We desperately need God's wisdom and recognize that we desperately need to change because sin is deadly. It kills us by degrees. We need not only to change, we need help. We are not strong. We are weak. And we need help. We all have a sin problem. James has reminded us of this. He's reminded us that sin is destructive. It's deadly to ourselves and and as well to others around us. In Jesus Christ, not only is there forgiveness from sin, but there is also help and hope to resist sin and to live lives, the life to which God has called us, Little by little, day by day, being changed a bit more, being made a bit more in the image of Jesus Christ until we will finally one day stand before him and it's all fully realized. But in the meantime, he's called us to change, to grow. May the Lord help us not just to be those who hear these words, but then put them into practice. But that's literally next week's lesson, and so we'll stop there. Father, we need to hear this because the reality is we all have a sin problem. Some of us more noticeable than others perhaps. Some of us, we would say, are bigger problems than others. But what we've learned, if nothing else today, is even the little problems are big ones. (laughs) The big ones are just culmination of little problems, little sins, little temptations we face and we Instead of saying no, we're carried away by our own desires, and then we get into trouble. So Father, may we not this morning be those who are defensive and we try to just defend our little sins and say they're okay, but rather may they be exposed by your word and may we cooperate with your Holy Spirit who wants to do surgery in us. And clean out those sins, so that corruption is not there, eating away with death and decay in our life. So fathers, we, 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 we ask that you and your grace would help us to be those who are doers of the word who put this into practice, that little by little will be changed by Jesus Christ or change into the image of Jesus Christ and that we will reflect your goodness and your grace, your love, your mercy, your gentleness, your kindness, that those things would be so evident in our life that it would be evident to people around us so that they would see you and so that they might come to know the Savior. These things we pray in his name. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.